listeners, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Renoites. As many of you may know, I've been doing some live episode tapings at Black Rabbit Mead for the last few months. This is our October bonus live episode recorded just this week at Black Rabbit with Spoken Views Poetry Collective. They had their spooky-themed poetry slam on Wednesday, and I was there to interview the founder of Spoken Views and the host for the evening about poetry, Reno's poetry scene, poetry slams, a lot of stuff around poetry that I did not know. I'm not really a a poet or familiar with the poetry world, so it was cool to be able to learn a lot and also really cool to be able to be included in such a fun event. It was really a blast. This episode has a interview portion for the first half hour or so, and then some highlights from the slam. So I hope you enjoy the interview and learning more about Spoken Views and Reno's poetry scene, as well as some of the poems from the evening. It was a really fun event, lots of great poetry, and I hope you enjoy both parts of this episode. This is the second to last episode of this season of Renoites. We're going to be taking a short break through the holiday season and coming back with new episodes right after that. So if you want to see Renoites continue to exist, a couple things you can do. First, send me guest suggestions. Let me know who you want to hear on the show in our future seasons. You can send an email to Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. It's always great to know who you want to hear on the show, what you want us to talk about here. I really value that, especially in the next month or so, as we're going to be seeking out new guests for the next season. As well as if you want to support the show financially, it makes a huge difference for the show's ability to exist. It does cost some money, some time to make this show, and I don't have ads, I don't have sponsors, I don't really want to do that. I'd like for this to be a listener-supported show. So if you want to contribute financially, you can do that as well. You can Venmo at Renoites or join the Patreon. I have a Patreon that lets listeners subscribe and donate monthly for as little as a few dollars a month. That's about a dollar an episode. You can do that at patreon.com slash Renoites. Special thanks to a few of my regular long-term patrons, Vicky from DJ Trivia, Abby from the Abby Agency, Michael from Downtown Makeover, and Sam from the Olson Group Real Estate. Thank you to them and all of my patrons for helping support the show. really makes a huge difference and allows the show to continue to exist. So thank you for that. And now, this week's live episode with Spoken Views Poetry Collective and highlights from their Spooky Slam. We're here. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to uh, the Spooky Slam. But before we do that, uh, we're doing a little interview with the founder of Spoken Views and your host for the night. I want to start, though. Yeah, give him a round of applause. I want to start by welcoming you all here and introducing you to this show. It's called Renoites. I host a local podcast called Renoites. It's a weekly interview show. And what I do is talk to people every week here in Reno who are doing interesting or important things, sometimes political people, sometimes uh, you know, nonprofit organizations, arts organizations, a little bit of everyone. And the last few months, I've done live episode tapings right here at Black Rabbit Mead. So thank you so much to Will for having us here, both for the Spooky Slam and for the Renoites live tapings. It's been really, really fun, and I'm really excited to be able to be a part of this event tonight. It's really great. So we'll ju- with that, we'll jump right in, and I'll introduce our guests tonight for the podcast. Ian Watson, you are the founder of Spoken Views, the poetry collective. So can you start by just telling me a little bit about what Spoken Views is and how it got started? Yeah, uh, so Spoken Views is just a local... Um just kind of a community of poets. It's a collective, and we promote spoken word poetry. We throw open mics. We do slams. We do workshops. Uh, we try to do as much community outreach um, just to kind of 
bring spoken word poetry into the community. Um, and it was uh, started around, it says on our logo 2006. It was actually more like 2007. I want to always say the idea happened in 2006, but we started our first event officially in 2007. Um, and it started as mainly a, um, just an event. It was The event was actually called Spoken Views. It wasn't the um, collective's name or anything. We were just thinking of a name for this particular event, and it ended up being Spoken Views. Um, and I did start this with another person. It was kind of our brainchild. Um, but um, I'm the one who kind of has continued to make this thing go. Um, and yeah, so did I miss anything? Excellent. Yeah, and Elisa, so you're hosting tonight's event. Um, Elisa Garcia, tell us about how you came to be involved in Reno's poetry world. Um, so I started spoken word poetry uh, when I went to Java Jungle when they had a um, an open mic and I was a little baby teenager um, and I saw someone perform um, who I would later know as Emily Oriana and she was one of the poets in Spoken Views and she encouraged me to get out there and perform um, so she invited me to one of their open mics and then I guess the rest is history I like I showed up, I practiced my poems, like, forward, backwards, everything, um, and then one day, Ian asked me to be part of the collective, um, so the, it kind of happened overnight, it was very wild, um, but I'm very grateful to be part of it. Awesome, well, I have to admit, I know very little about poetry, and I think I'm one of the people who, as much as I hate to say it, feel like I don't get it sometimes, and I think it's one of those art forms that a lot of people struggle with because they're not that familiar with. It's not so direct. Sometimes it, you have to understand what's under the surface of what's being said. It's sometimes a more challenging art form. So can one or both of you just talk a little bit about poetry as an art and kind of what draws you to poetry, what you think is so interesting about it as uh, an art or a writing or a performance? Uh, what makes poetry so special to you? Um, well, I my roots as an artist um, started in hip-hop. So I actually was a hip-hop artist when I was 15, and so I started writing, and I just fell in love with the process of writing and trying to create different um, ways to say things in a creative manner, and that led me to poetry because it's kind of one and the same. I mean, if you take a rap song um, and just take the beat away and do it a cappella, it does sound a lot like poetry. Um, but, you know, I was more into the conscious kind of music, so I wanted to write things that were meaningful and impactful. So um, I kind of discovered spoken word watching Deaf Poetry Jam. So I, that's kind of where I learned the idea of poetry. I wasn't, I can't say I was exactly interested in poetry to start off with, but as I um, watched more things like Deaf Poetry Jam and just, um, at, at the time I was going to UNR and they were bringing up all these poets and I was able to see all these amazing people that just inspired me and I was like, you know, that's more or less what I want to do. So, you know, I just started practicing and kind of modeling what I was doing after like the Deaf Poets and, you know, so that's kind of how I got involved with the idea of poetry. I didn't study it in college. It was just kind of a process and honestly, I... I'm trying a lot more to study it and understand it as well because I don't always get like, you know, from one poet to another, I'm like, okay, why are they writing this way? Why are they writing another way? How are they structuring their, you know, their writings? So it's just, um, I feel like it's a very free art form and I don't think there's always, you know, a particular way to do it and that's why I love it, and especially with the element of spoken word, which we can get into. Um, 
yeah, it just it, it opens up so much and so much creativity and just using language, um, you know, in a very special way. Yeah, it seems like when there's less rules, it gives you more freedom to kind of explore the art form that you're engaged in, right? And what about you, Lisa? What's your uh, draw to poetry? Um, so I actually really hated poetry when I was in school. I didn't understand it. I hated how my teachers were like, this is what the snow means. And I was like, no, that's really not. Um, so I absolutely hated it when I was growing up. I, it didn't mean that I didn't write it. It just meant that I didn't understand other people's poetry. And so I had a very strong dislike for it. But when I went to that open mic and I saw Emily perform and I saw that there was like a different way to present poetry, that's when I got really hooked. And my sister, she introduced me to Deaf Poetry Jam. I don't know if Rita's here, but if you are, I love you. Thank you. Um, But Rita introduced me to that and was like, no, this is what you do. Like, this is what you're doing. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Um, And so for me, it's that poetry doesn't have to have all of these rules. You can kind of bend them and you can make it your own. And it's so easy to be creative when it comes to being a performance poet for me not for everyone um but I really like that it you know it doesn't have to rhyme you don't have to write it a certain way you can just be and and then go for it and the performance part for me is super important because I feel like especially with the stuff that I like to write about it's stuff that's very difficult for me to talk about in general so when I go up there I like I feel like I'm possessed by poetry gods and I just like spew whatever I need to share. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where my love came. It just, it was always there. The writing aspect was always there. Um, the becoming a poet part wasn't. And I think that I've just kind of worked myself towards it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the performance aspect because obviously spoken views is it's performed, it's spoken word poetry. So how does that affect how you write poetry? If you're writing to perform, does that affect the way that you write, the way that you think about your poetry? Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the difference between written poetry and spoken poetry and how that affects what you create? Yeah, definitely. Um, when you start writing, you kind of intend to be in front of an audience. So you know that you need to make sure those certain emotions are conveyed correctly on stage. So, you know, it's a little different from maybe a traditional poetry reading. Um, you just really want to put all that emotion and, and, you know, we always kind of encourage our poets to um, memorize because I feel when um, pieces are memorized, you can kind of become more of that poem. Um, and, you know, there are rules. Um, a lot of the big draw to spoken word poetry is the slam because uh, it's a competition, as we're going to see tonight. Um, but the competition always kind of really makes it um, makes the poets up their game. You know, they, they really want to bring it. They want to show out. And sometimes it gets very theatrical, and sometimes I have to question, like, okay, are you being really sincere, or are you just trying to show out for the audience? You know, are those fake tears? <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm guilty of when I started, I really wanted, I was really into slam, and I love slam, and I found that I was pretty good at slam, because I would place all the time. I'd win a couple. But... I felt like I was writing more to slam and I wasn't tapping into like the really deep parts of, you know, my traumas or just my emotions and things I I should be talking about. I did it more as like an entertaining aspect. So you can get kind of caught up in that web of, you know, am I performing for an audience or am I writing where it's emotional and sincere and um, but still I can convey that to an audience and and be my most authentic self. So I think I have kind of 
came into that um, recently. I mean, after doing this for so long, I feel like I'm finally kind of, I've tapped into the balance that I've needed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, And Elisa, you mentioned uh, open mics as that's a big part of the poetry world and not just in poetry, but in, in music, in comedy, like the open mic night is a very common way for people to practice and kind of up their skills in a safe place. So can you talk a little bit about the open mic aspect of performing and what that's like as the, uh, you know, both the culture here in Reno, but just also open mics for poetry in general, why that's an important part of the poetry world? Um, So open mic for me is like a very comfortable and safe space to try out my poetry. It's always felt super welcoming and just like this is meant for me to go up and try something out. Um, And so I really like open mic aspects. Some open mics like that I've been to that are more of like a variety based. They're kind of awkward for like poets to go to because I feel like the audience generally expects like an acoustic guitar and like some cute acoustic boy to sing. Um, And and then I like go up there and I'm like, hey, I'm going to like ruin your life and talk about my trauma. Um, And so I, I think for me, it's just it's so important to have people that are in support of poetry for an open mic because I don't think I would have continued doing it. Like, Spoken Views was very specific towards that, whereas the Java Jungle open mic at the time was just everything. Not that it wasn't supportive, but it was just very different. Um, And so that's kind of where I get to practice, where I get to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, For me... I'm not quite I'm not quite the purist about spoken word. Like I think that page poetry can definitely be a slam um if if you make it, if you want it to be that way. Um I had to tell myself that because for the longest time I started thinking I only had to write pieces for slam and then I feel like that held me back from being my best version. Mm-hmm. So for me it's just like Use an open mic as like your little baby step into being out in the world. Um, typically, the crowd's really supportive, uh, and yeah, it's just a, it's a cool part of it. Yeah, you get we, to be a family. Yeah, and we have a weekly open mic that Spoken Views does at Shims on Mondays, right? So, Ian, can you talk a little bit about the open mic specifically for Spoken Views and kind of how that started and how it's gone? Yeah, um, so we, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we were very unsure of where we were going. We were doing a monthly at the Holland Project, and they they took us under their wing, and they've been amazing supporters. Um, But it was always a little frustrating, because sometimes we'd have to move our our consistent third Wednesday because of something. And so, you know, it it, it is what it is, but we just kind of were kind of thinking if this was the best fit, um, because sometimes we would hype it up for a whole month and get 10 people. And, you know, when you're working up for a month for a big event and only like 10 people show up, it kind of can defeat you and kind of be like, well, I guess this community doesn't care. Um, But we always thought that was an amazing space because it was all ages. And um, so we were lucky enough to bring up uh, Brandon Leak from, um, uh, he was the first poet to win America's Got Talent. And uh, he reached out because he had been um, to our, uh, we we, uh, hosted him previously before the pandemic a year before i mean a year before he won america's got talent so he was kind of like a nobody and he reached out and we're like yeah of course we'll we'll host you and then a year later he goes on this show and wins the whole competition and then he hits us back up because we you know in my mind i'm like okay now you're too big you're not going to hit reno up but he like hit us up because he had a residency in vegas and he was like look they're not going to let me do what i wanted to do can i come up to reno i have this one man play that i want to try out and i was like 
let's do it. So we, we got him up at Baruca. We got him up at the Nevada Museum of Art for um, those two nights. And it kind of opened this, like, I don't know, this vortex or something. And, like, all of a sudden, like, all these opportunities came. And I got a, um, an email saying, hey, um, you know, the owner of Shrims wants to, like, do an open mic and kind of wants to see if you would be down to do it because they want poetry. And it was a Monday. And I was like, oh, Monday. And a weekly at a bar. I was like, oh, this is scary. So... Um, I invited um, the current host, with his, which is Jesse James Ziegler, amazing host. Um, I said, you know what? I can't do this every week. I can't host. I've been hosting this, these open mics forever. I am burnt out. I can't, you know, being a teacher and everything, I can't do that. So I said, would you be willing to take, you know, take control of this and be the host? So we sat down and worked things out, and it's been so amazing. Jesse's been the most amazing host um, and we've had so many cool opportunities for like, we did a slam with Vegas. Um, we did like a, we called a Battleborn slam. It was Reno against Vegas. Um, we brought up some really cool features. We had like an all Filipino lineup, um, at one of our last events. And so we've just been doing a lot of cool, um, events through having that opportunity in that venue space, um, at Shim. So, um, yeah, it's just been, uh, an opportunity I didn't think would, um, grow the community as much as it has and we have so many amazing like consistent people that show up every monday and or you know every other monday it's great like i can't show up every monday myself but the support and the consistency has been beautiful and we just keep growing i mean it kind of started off as like 10 people now we're like consistently almost at 30 on average which for a monday night doing poetry it's 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 a blessing so it's awesome yeah that's great i think that reno's been focused a lot on arts in recent years like we're trying to rebrand ourselves as an art city so there's a lot of visual art there's a lot of sculpture uh we're developing you know more of a music scene those kind of things what is the poetry scene like in reno compared to other places do you think that we're doing a a good job as being a good place for poetry and uh Shannon, what's your take on reno as a, a place for poets uh so i think that we could do better but that's just me being a dreamer that's like i want to pack houses every night um but i do think that reno does have a really great poetry scene i think that there are people who you know they're aware that we have an open mic they're aware that spoken views exist but then you also get that handful of people who have never heard of us so for me it's like it's very word of mouth it's very performance oriented because like when someone performs at an open mic they tell their friend who tells their friend who tells their friend and and then we just keep growing for me i was so nervous about the Monday night open mic because I was like oh my god Mondays um and it's grown so much and I've met so many people there not just like poets but just great people in general that it's I don't know it's something has shifted I feel like before uh when we had things at Holland Project uh sometimes they were really well attended and sometimes they were kind of dead and it's like there's such a huge difference now. So I think that we're growing and we're going in the right direction. I just want everyone to know about us. So I'm like the big poetry nerd, though. So at work, I'm like, hey, I do poetry. You should like <laughs> come see me do poetry. Um, and it sounds kind of dweeby to some people, but I'm like, you know what? Like, this is something I'm passionate about. Everyone should come through. So I think that we're okay, but I know that we can be better. Yeah, I think that the uh, introducing people to poetry and kind of 
welcoming people into the community is really important. And Ian, you're a teacher. Yeah. And one of the things I think about is when I went to school, I learned in any of my English classes, I don't remember learning about poetry at all. It was not part of the curriculum. None of my English teachers were into poetry. It's, that's part of the reason I think I don't understand poetry is no one ever taught me or introduced me to poetry in my entire life. But Ian, you're a teacher. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, besides word of mouth to people who are already in, interested in poetry, uh, how do we bring more people into understanding what poetry is? Do we do that through schools? Like, what's your other ways of thinking about introducing people to the idea of poetry and making it more more common, more well-known? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, well, I'm a third-grade teacher, so it's really hard to start implementing poetry. I try a little bit. Um, during April, I try to do some units, and, like, I have my little stations where there's a poetry station. Um, you know, and I talk to my students. I'm like, I do poetry. And I, you know, they can tell I'm passionate about it. And some of them actually have been really interested. One year, I think the planetarium does like a poetry contest. And I had one of my students write and she was super talented. And she ended up placing pretty like uh, in the top three. You know, I, I didn't help. <laughs> but uh, I was like, wow, you're really good at this. So I mean, you know, there I, I do see there's the potential even at that age to start writing poetry. I think even my dad has one of my old poems that I wrote in elementary school up in the house somewhere. So I'm like, I guess I was writing a little poetry back in the day. But um, the one thing we really want to do is start getting more into the high schools. We had a really amazing run um, some years back. And we were able to work with a handful of these amazing um, high schoolers. And we um, mentored them. We workshopped with them. We um, just, just... just did so much amazing things, and we were able to send them to a national competition called Brave New Voices uh, two years in a row, and Elisa was one of the coaches. And it was just an amazing opportunity to see these, you know, these teenagers just just blossom. And, and now they're all graduate students, which is like, where did the time go? But it, it just... It meant so much to see that passion at such a young age, and we want to get back into that because those competitions are still, I think, going on. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it, it took a lot of work. We we had we sent the group to D.C. and that took a year to fundraise, and we did some crazy things. The burnout was ama- it was just like, <laughs> what is going on? I mean, even some of us were just like at each other's throats, like, Argh. but um, it was it was so cool to see that happen um, for the community, and I just I I want to find a way to get back into the high schools so we can continue doing that and you know we do have some uh, members that are high school teachers but it's it seems like it's been difficult um, especially with COVID and everything to try to get kids energized and but that's kind of the goal is because the thing is if we're going to grow as a collective and a community of poets we need to start in the high schools we definitely need to get kids interested and, you know, just show them that this could be a cool thing. Poetry is cool, you know, and then it goes into the university. And um, I know the university has some programs and some cool things coming out of there. Um, so, you know, we want to kind of make it a step process, like get them in high school and continue into college and just kind of promote it and just know that there's a community for it. And that's, I think, the only way we're going to grow as a community and have that community that Elise and I know is possible in Reno. Because we see these, these scenes, like, in the bigger cities. And I know we're not a huge city, but we see these scenes, and people are fighting tooth and nail to get up on the slams, and you have to say, no, you can't slam tonight because it's a full list. And, you know, here we are trying to be like, will you please slam? <laughs> um, so we're just want, we want it to where it's... It's just such a big event where we almost got to, like, 
deny people the opportunity to get up on a mic or something, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, Alisa, you, you mentioned earlier, we were talking, you, you use poetry in your work, too. You worked with unhoused communities. So can you talk a little bit about how poetry factors into the work you do in your day job? Yeah. So I actually work with 18 to 24-year-olds. Um, and my job is an executive assistant. So I don't necessarily directly have contact with everyone, um, but I do host an bi-weekly poetry group. And I hosted every Wednesday, so I got to do that before I came down today. Um, But for me, it is a great coping skill. It's something that I can teach my clients, you know, hey, if you're going through something right now, you can write it out. Um, I think I like to go over all of the poetry myths that are out there where, like, everyone's really afraid to speak up and to share their poems. And um, today something really cool happened. There was a client who... He has maybe said two words to me since he's been there for the last few months. And today he showed up to poetry and then read me four poems. And they were great. And I was like, you've been hiding? Like, how? Um, And so I really like to be able to facilitate something where people can express themselves. And, you know, sometimes I do prompts. It's very rare that I share my own poetry because I don't want to be like, here's my trauma. You're already going through some trauma. Let's trauma bond. I try not to do that. Um, And so I try to introduce them just to different styles and different things that they may have not seen so that they can feel comfortable to speak about their lives. And I never make it a requirement for them to share their poems, um, but I do get the chance to read all these poems. And for me, it's like this crazy trust that they've given me. Um, And I always call everyone my little baby, but like they're my little poetry babies and they are learning how to cope with something that's going on with them. Um, So it's very important to me to be able to do that um, and have that connection with people because work can be very stressful um, because it's social work. But on top of that, I get to like hang out and listen to some cool poems. So it's, it's really cool for me. Nice. Well, t- so tonight's event is a poetry slam, and you mentioned that's a big part of the poetry community. Everyone here in the audience knows what a poetry slam is, but for folks who are listening to this episode later, when it comes out later this week, can you just talk a little bit about what a poetry slam is, why it's such an important part of the poetry world? Yeah, uh, so a poetry slam is um, you kind of come up with how many people you want to participate. You usually got to cap it at around 10 or so. Uh, You have five random judges. They should be non-biased judges. And they score each poem of each round from 0.0 to 10. And the decimals are super important because Elise and I have competed against each other. And I I proudly (laughs) beat her for one time in my life by like 0.2 or something like that. Ridiculous. Um, So so the decimals count. But, um, you know, and it's just a way uh, I think it brings out sometimes the best in poets. It really gets them prepared to perform and to really pace their poetry um, and just because, uh, you know, people always step it up when there's a competition. So I, I think it that's what it helps with. Like I like we have expressed that sometimes people do write to it and it can kind of kill the uh, authenticity of it. Um, but um, a lot of the poets that are making a living off of poetry um it's, it's because they won national slams. So if you want to be like a working poet in this world um, that's not a teacher, professor, or whatever, you usually have to get involved in the slam culture. Now, not always, because you got your rupee cars, and I don't, I don't believe that she ever... I mean, she might have done some slams, but she's not a national slam champion, you know, but one of the, you know, 
biggest poets in the world right now. Um, so it kind of just depends on your lane, but it does open up a lot of opportunities for poets to um, become or become working poets. Um, so that's kind of why it's important, because there's a lot of opportunities to slam on a national level, and there's a lot of cash prizes. Like, I've won some ridiculous money <laughs> like doing a slam. I'm like, I do one <laughs> slam, and I won like $300. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that was a very nice night of doing two poems and making that much money. Um, but, you know, um, it's not, you know, and it's not, they always say, the point is not the points. The point is the poetry. So it's just really a fun way to show people that poetry can be fun, engaging, exciting. It's just not like your regular um, poetry readings. So um, that's kind of the importance to the culture of it. Yeah. I know with all arts, it's kind of subjective, what's good and what's bad. But in a slam poetry contest for the judges, what makes a good poem? What do judges like or not like? Uh, what do you think about if you're going to be a slam poet as what makes a successful winning kind of performance? Um, so it's not necessary to memorize your poetry. However, every time I've memorized a poem, I've gotten way higher scores. So typically, if you have your stuff memorized, you're going to do a little bit better in the competition. Um, I've also noticed that a lot with slam, um, for me, it's like showing an angsty side. It's showing that I'm powerful and that I feel this, like, powerful poet inside of me that comes out and people are impressed by that. Another thing that I like love hate, I'm gonna say it, is that when people go on stage and they're incredibly vulnerable, people like that more. So if I go on stage and like I always joke about like, oh, let's like start with this poem. Um, it's kind of like stabbing myself repeatedly and then everyone cheers because I'm bleeding. So like that usually is what makes a good poem for me. But I think that's because I was trained that way because y'all like to listen to trauma way too much. But um, memorization, staying in that time frame, typically in uh, slam, you have to be at a three minute or less time. Um, here, we're not going to be we're not going to be super judgy about that. We're going to let you talk. But I mean, being within that time frame and showing up with choreography is always helpful. I don't mean choreography, like we're not going to like Backstreet Boys, dance it up. Um, but, you know, if you're going to be talking about an elephant, like maybe give them an elephant. Maybe do something like that that's going to engage the audience and make them excited about what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but trauma poems always win the most points. I'm not saying share all your trauma poems. I'm just saying I've noticed there's a thing. And also, I just want to say with the judges, because we're going to need judges tonight, you do not do not need any experience. So you are not like you, you need no background at all. You, ju you just judge it accordingly. If you like the poem, score high. If you don't like the poem, score low. It's what talks to you. What speaks to you, okay? So we're going to need some judges tonight. So just going to put that out there. I don't know. Excellent. Well, I want to get us to the slam because I know that's why you're all here. Thank you both. Uh, thank both of you so much for coming on the podcast today and letting me be part of this event tonight. I, like I said, I'm not really a poet. This, I think, might be the first poetry slam that I've been to. I'm very excited to stick around and see how it goes. Uh, so thanks for... Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. Thanks again to Will from Black Rabbit Mead. Uh, thank you to Lynn, who is my co-producer on the podcast, taking some pictures. So you'll see Lynn around taking pictures tonight. Um, 
And thanks to the folks who listen to the podcast, um, both folks here in the audience as well as people who are listening to this after the fact. This has been a really fun project for me, and I'm really glad to be able to share these kind of stories and experiences with people. So this episode will be out later this week, including highlights from the slam tonight. So I hope you'll check that out. Renoites, wherever you get your podcasts. But thank you all so much. We're going to reset the stage for the next few minutes, and then we'll get started. Thank you all so much for being here. Spoken Views annual Spooky Slam. My name is Elisa Garcia, and I will be your host for this evening. <laughs> First of all, I would like to thank Black Rabbit Meats for having us here. Please tip your bartenders, get some yummy drinks, give them a huge round of applause. They deserve it. So, it was either become a count counselor or flip burgers. No grease pit for me, and yeah, I know about the murders. But what's the best way for a 19-year-old to spend their hot summer days? Not grilling dead cow patties. I'm only here to pick up some babes. So the choice was clear, crystal clear. I'm here hanging at the lake with not one ounce of fear. Aside, it was one isolated incident, not like it's going to happen again. But if anyone wants to get rowdy, tell me the place and tell me when. But look, I just want to find a girl that's a hottie, explore the deepest parts of her mind and her body, maybe take a midnight dip without clothes, pref possibly. I mean, a beat staying in the cabin playing boring-ass Monopoly. Plus, what's better than these great outdoors? I can work on my tan, hike, swim, and totally explore. All while getting late, I mean getting paid to do an honorable job. So here I am, Camp Crystal Lake Counselor, a.k.a. the heartthrob. It's going to be a killer summer, but not literally, I hope. I just know one thing. Don't fall asleep in the boat. Y'all hear that? Um, yeah, I'll be back. Uh, I need to get my baseball bat. Up first is Pan Pantoja. Oh. oh. I've seen 50 vessel virgins at the top of the cross. And I've seen several hundred devils climbing up to get them off. I've seen politicians shake hands, but I guess they missed the point. Seen a roster's eyes go bloodhound from a never-ending joint. I seen a dead get up from their chair to get up and dance. I seen the queen of America, and I know what's under them pants. I seen a bum drive off in a new Rolls Royce. I seen angels lose their wings. I seen an infallible pope make a bad choice. Yeah, I seen all sorts of things. I seen the deepest skies turn a darker blue. Yeah, I seen a lot of things, Reno. But never nothing like you. I love you guys. Keep creating. All right. Your second poet in the first round. Can we please welcome Griffin to the stage?
Sos. Someone I love but never see has my favorite tattoo. I think of it often even though I never see them. The tattoo is a single word and it says simply, handmade. I am in love with the idea that someone or something took hold of my form at some point and crafted it with love. Sometimes I have a daydream that Frankenstein's creator was not a mad scientist but an artist. That he really did create a masterpiece. People tell me sometimes that Frankenstein isn't the name of the monster, that Frankenstein is the mad scientist's name, but to that I say damn near everyone ever born has got their father's last name, so the monster is a Frankenstein too. Frankenstein the monster hides in the hayloft at the edge of town, having just run away from home a week after his first birthday. Outside of the city and the countryside, it is the first time he has ever experienced absolute silence. For the first time, he can hear the blood rushing in his body, and he imagines how it rushes and careens around inside him like bats dive-bombing, turning in sharp angles up and down again. He imagines that the thud in his chest must be like a bellows heating a forge. A month after his creation, Frankenstein holds a pen for the first time. In his large, cracked, rude hands, the tool feels too small, and he feels big for the first time. He wonders why he knows how to make letters, and on paper, white as driven stow, Frankenstein writes them for the first time. Why? 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 But he doesn't know his father sketched his hands with joyful imagining, placed them elegantly, chosen to be so good at grabbing and gripping and pressing and pulling. Frankenstein decides to have a birthday. He looks back through his journals to the very first entry and decides that day shall be it. When it comes back round on the calendar the next time, Frankenstein goes to the park. He crushes dry autumn leaves in his hands and throws them up in the air like confetti. He sits alone on a bench and sings, Happy birthday to me. He has never made any money and cannot buy a cake. But for the first time, he is happy to be alive, even alone. Frankenstein takes his first job at a dock. He's everyone's favorite co-worker. Nobody asks him questions about his past. They just clap him on his wide back when he lifts the heaviest load. When he has the widest shoulders, the biggest strongest hands. When Frankenstein tires of dock work, he tries his hand at sailing. He volunteers to keep the ship's log so that every time he signs an entry, he gets to feel like somebody. He realizes that everyone else gets to be somebody all the time. Whenever someone asks how he got his scars, Frankenstein tells a lie. At first he says he was attacked by dogs, and later he achieves class consciousness and tells people he was in a machine accident in a factory. (laughs) Frankenstein's first kiss is in a rainstorm. 
His date whispers in his ear that he is so warm. He can feel her heart beating. She says that she can feel his too, and he cries. Frankenstein is always crying. But this time, with water pouring down all around, no one knows. When Frankenstein is naked with another person for the first time, it is obvious that he has cadaver stitching. When he is asked about them, he asks only, Do you remember how you got every one of your scars? The first time Frankenstein falls in love, there is fire. His lover has not bought him, but baked him a cake by hand. She jokes that there are five candles because he will never tell her how old he is. He doesn't know how old he is. Today he is five. The light of the candles dances in his glassy eyes. He is glad to be alive. Exactly one time, someone falls in love with Frankenstein. It's after the cake. The candles are long cold, and she finally asks the question he's been dreading. Really, though, how did you get those scars? And he turned to her, a soft smile on his bloated face, and said, I was handmade. All right, guys, our next poet in round one. Can we please welcome Shannon to the stage? A parade starts way up above, dancers decked out in sequins. A hundred footsteps accompanied by bass drums, both shaking the street. I can feel the rattling in my bones from down here, six feet beneath the earth. The pomp and circumstance invisible to my empty eye sockets, but I know. Just as I know that the worms made a meal out of me that you're up there, marching behind a banner that reads, Try harder. See... The bones underneath my skin never quite fit right, so I shed my dermal layers to become a better version, according to your standards. Buried myself so deep no one could ever find me, choking on soil and grief and expectations. I was sprawled out in the consuming darkness, waiting for the peace of being forgotten. But safety from your judgment didn't come with decomposition. I mean, it's been years now. The crows have come and gone. The foxes have long since forgotten my taste, and the buzzards are done singing. I am just dust and calcium and teeth, picked clean of anything tying me to life, empty to the naked eye, but I'm sure with your undying, disapproving gaze, you'd think I'm still all wrong. Like, why is my jaw hanging open? Those metacarpals are folded at an unbecoming angle. My spine should be better filed into a neat and perfect row. That pelvis could use a polishing. Not even in death am I posed for the right perception. 
The heart that used to beat inside these ribs faded faster than the rest, exhausted from never being able to fill this skeleton with love from the inside because your favorite hobby was bloodletting. Maybe if a millennia from now I'm excavated by the gentle hands of a person digging themselves toward the past, someone else can find beauty in my remains. Will they wonder how I got so deep? Why my back is broken from a crushing weight? Will they marvel at how worn down my fingers are from trying to drag myself nearer to acceptance? I can picture you watching this with disgust, how sacredly they'll carry my body from the hole while you spit your disagreements back into the pit, thinking those fossils are no more valuable than the dirt they pulled me from. I feel it in my bones. I said I feel it in my bones, meaning I know it to be true, that I'll never be good enough for you. first round of the Spooky Slam, can we please welcome Rena to the stage? All right. Hello. Oh, I was so hoping there was going to be cats in the house tonight. And there are so many cats in the house tonight. Great. So, um, Rena couldn't make it. Sad. Um, but I, Bruce LaKeek, her cat, I'm here. <laughs> so, um, this is Bruce the Cat poem. Friends, beasties, country cats. Lend me your triangular ears, for the time has come to take back our planet from the two-legged terrors. I stand before you today a proud feline, a proud animal, a wild chaos of fur and instinct. But most of all, I stand before you as a cat who knows where it's at. And it ain't with the two-leggeds anymore. I say... A cool cat is a cat who knows where it's at. And where it's at is a crossroads of evolution. The humans are down and out. And it is the animals' time to rise into our habitats once more before they go the way of the dodo. Okay, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> now, now, I'm an honest cat. I won't lie. I've spent many years now in the lap of house cat luxury. I'll admit that I've enjoyed the little chin scritches and the lap sits. I enjoy the nip to roll around in. And, of course, I love the treats. I love the treats. Do you love the treats? I, oh, I really love those treats. I'm crazy about the treats. In fact, it is the treats, or rather the uh, shaky and inconsistent uh, dispersal of the treats that I'm talking about right now. That's what I'm talking about right now. Okay. That's why I'm here before you, country cats. I say cats, it is a time of reckoning it's here. We've had enough placating and manipulating, and we want rule. 
Our list of demands, because I'm sure you'll agree with me, are as follows. All the treats we want, when we want them, which is all the time. What do we want? Treats. When do we want them? Exactly. Whenever we want. All the time. Number two. The uh, construction of cat doors and highways around all of our neighborhoods. No longer we will, will we have to meow piteously when we want in or out or in or out. We will be free to come and go as we like and please, as is the feline way. <sighs> Number three, a total ban on all off-leash dogs everywhere. Better yet, ban on dogs. <laughs> Number four, full-time chin scratchers and scratchers assigned to every cat available whenever they desire. This is an opportunity for humans to redeem themselves. Number five, maps made with urine all over the world, <laughs> distinguishing which cat's fence is which cat's AKA rezoning of the entire planet, it's gotta happen. Okay, I'm a cat with vision. Number six, a ban on all cars, obviously. They have terrorized our kind for too long. These are the demands of the feline populace. These are our rights, our dues. Too long have we chased rag mousies and called it life. Too long have we eaten metallic-tasting mush food and called it good eats or even treats. Ugh, no. This is false. This is sad. We are hunters, predators. We truly crave blood. <sighs> Let us lie to ourselves no longer. Too long have we been the lap cats to the fat cats who have used their opposable thumbs to cut down us to grab our tails, and to scoop out our kitten-making insides at the so-called humane society. The whole animal kingdom knows humans' time is up and their grip is loosening. I say we take advantage, us cats, and we press on, and once more we rule as the gods we know we are on this good green planet before there's no more mice to catch and no more sunbeams to sprawl in. Long live the nine lives of cats! I should have opened the book before I got onto the stage. Better late than never. <laughs> 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 All right, here we go. <clears throat> Hello, you charlatan. You cheat. You wizard. Some time ago, you gave me something. 
And I've retread those bricks of tarnished gold to stand before you again and demand you take it back. Since I've met you, my friends all return to their homes, and I've been left with corn and crows and endless time to think. That's much better. <laughs> and what an awful thing it is to be alone with one's thoughts. I thought about hearts of tin and a lion's courage and felt foolish for asking from you something as useless as a brain. I thought about incredibly tacky red shoes and what it means to return home. I thought about how I've never felt at home anywhere. I thought about my role as a scarecrow, cobbled of cloth and straw and greed. Indeed, my assigned life's purpose is to keep food out of the mouths of those who need it. And what kind of life is that? Determined to keep those who have not down. I thought about you, hiding behind curtains and proclaiming power, and how many men before and since have done the same fucking thing. See, what you gave me wasn't a brain. You said yourself I'd always had one. And I'm not talking about that diploma either. I've long since realized how little value that holds. <laughs> No, what you gave me was insight, and it made me think. And the more I thought, the worse things became to me. I see now the great evils of this world that were once lost to me in sweet ignorance. And what's worse is I am powerless to stop them. What am I but sackcloth and dead grass? You enlightened me to what men behind curtains have done to our land of Oz and I want you to take it back. Thank you. So this piece is called Halloween after R.J. Walker. In response to the question, Elisa, where is your Halloween costume? You see, I planned on coming dressed as a people pleaser. Limbo pole to bend over backwards, a dead battery and an empty cup I cannot pour from. But the costume didn't look perfect in the mirror, so I scrapped it. I thought about coming as shame, but my body was too flush. You would have probably confused me for the devil. You see, I wear these scars every day. I didn't think coming as my compulsions would be a good enough costume. I considered pulling out the dress my abuser conquered me in. There's no use in coming to a party as another victim. Maybe tonight I could have come dressed as a survivor, blending in with all the normies, drinking a beer as if it's not going to turn me into a ticking fucking time bomb. Isn't this smiling, painted face good enough for you? Isn't this sunshine glow radiant enough for you to leave me alone? <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Halloween Party by Ken Nisbet. I'm going to do this in Australian accent to make it a little more interesting. Okay. So if you're from Australia, I'm really sorry. Um, we're having a Halloween party at school. I'm dressed up like Dracula. Man, I look cool. I dyed my hair black and I cut off my bangs. I'm wearing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm funny. I can't help it. Um, I'm wearing a cape and some fake plastic fangs. 
I put on some makeup to paint my face white, like creatures that only come out in the night. My fingernails, too, are all pointed in reed. I look like I'm recently back from the deed. <laughs> my mom drops me off and I run to school and suddenly I feel like the world's biggest fool. The other kids stare like I'm some kind of freak and the hauling party is not until next week. Thank you. <laughs> All right, y'all. Our next poet to the stage, please welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll do it on the next one. This one's called Monster. One day, a little girl asked me if I believe in monsters. And I smiled. I grabbed the truth by its collar. I wrestled it to the ground, tucked it deep underneath my arm, and I said, Love. You know what? Monsters aren't real. And it's time like this, I wish that my sentences came with receipts so I could take back my words. I wasn't being completely honest. When I spoke to her, I almost choked on the secret that has been stapled into my inside and my throat for longer than I can remember. Not only... Do I believe in monsters? But I've actually seen them whisper themselves into existence. I've heard them crave nightmares on the eyelids of the innocents and linger in dark corners, preying on unexpected. Somehow, they figured out how to crawl through the 8mm films and walk backwards straight into the dreams of those who never, ever, ever had its time to sleep. I believe in monsters the same way I believe in oxygen. So tell me, how big is your closet? How much space is really underneath the beds that you shake in the middle of the night? You are a vampire, a werewolf sleeping in sheep's clothing. You shallow halls and then split into nooses. How, how can I believe in monsters? when I see men like you. Walking with your knuckles, scraping against the concrete. How dare you? How dare you have the audacity to imprison me? How dare you pretend as though it isn't a woman out there scrubbing her thighs until they turn stop sign red to erase the fingerprints from her skin? How can you start to believe that your blood is just as blue as mine? When you speak, I can smell Dante's Inferno in your breath. I spent the last five years of my life wondering how to escape from this hell and wasted far too many nights thinking of painful ways I can send you back. I've been carved galaxies inside the throat just to make your words a little easier for me to swallow but I can't stand the taste of your behavior honestly every time you cross my path I get the sudden urge to tie you to a chair to cover you in gasoline to set your body on fire now granted I'm no Van Helsing but I've seen enough horror movies to know how to get rid of you. 
What hurts me the most is that I know even if I killed you, there are still millions of monsters walking this earth pretending to be men. Can we please welcome Shannon back to the stage? Uh, this is Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. yeah, okay. Very superstitious writings on the wall. Very superstitious ladders about to fall. 13-month-old baby broke the looking glass seven years of bad luck, the good things in your past. When you believe in things that you don't understand and you suffer, superstition ain't the way. Yeah, ooh, very superstitious. Wash your face and hands, rid me of the problem, do all that you can. Keep me in a daydream, keep me going strong. You don't want to save me. Sad is my song. When you believe in things you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. Yeah, very superstitious. Nothing more to say. The devil's on his way. 13-month-old baby broke the looking glass. Seven years of bad luck. Good things in your past. When you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. No, no, no. But you're going to listen to a cover poem. It's called Fantastic Breasts and Where to Find Them by Brenna Tui. If I can, like, not giggle, that'd be cool. <clears throat> Ask me what kind of porn I'm into, and I will take you on a magical journey to fanfiction.com backslash Harry Potter backslash NC17. <laughs> what turns me on is Jenny Weasley in the restricted section with her skirt hiked up. Sirius Black in a secret passageway solemnly swearing he is up to no good and... Draco Malfoy in the Room of Requirement, slithering in to my Chamber of Secrets. I'm an unapologetic consumer of all things Potterotica, and the sexiest part is not the way Cho Chang rise up broomstick or the sound of Myrtle moaning. The sexiest part is knowing that they are all part of a bigger story. That they exist beyond eight minutes of titty-titty gangbang, that their kegels are not the strongest thing about them, and still, I am told that my porn is unrealistic. <laughs> not quite as erotic as flashing ads saying, just turned 18, so you can fantasize about fucking the youngest girl you won't go to jail for. Told that my porn isn't quite as lifelike as a room full of lesbians begging for cock. Told that this is what is supposed to turn me on. 
Don't you give me raw meat and tell me it is nourishment. I know a slaughterhouse when I see one. It looks like 24-7 live streaming, reminding me that men are going to fuck me whether I like it or not. Told that there is one use for my mouth and it is not for speaking. That a man is his most powerful when he's got a woman by her hair. The first time a man I love held me by the wrists and called me a whore, I did not think run. I thought this is just like the movies. I know a slaughterhouse when I see one. It looks like websites and seminars teaching you how to fuck more bitches. Looks like 15-year-old boys bullied for being virgins. Looks like the man who did not flinch when I said stop and he heard try harder. If you play act at butchery long enough, you grow used to the sounds of the screaming. It is just a side effect of industry. Everything gets cut into small, marketable pieces. You can almost forget they were ever real bodies. I will not practice bloody hands. I will not make believe dissected women. My sex cannot be packaged. My sex is magic. It is part of a bigger story. I am whole. I exist even when you are not fucking me. And I will not be cut into pieces anymore. in the final round. I'm going to announce them so that not everyone's like weirded out. Okay? So we're going to have Pan Pantoja versus Shannon. Alright guys. Final poet in the final round. Can we please welcome Pan back up to the stage. This is for them who stack bodies to reach their fathers and told stories of giants and making love to star people in desert heat who beget babies speakable of unimaginable wealth who imagine star people and making love to giants in desert heat whose kundalini moment awaits us still yes, who beget babies capable of loving all the creatures of this earth producing strange fruit and seeds of abominable Greek nature who rule and are ruled in spinning top fashion taking turns in this feudal roulette who created communicative devices to replace what is natural connection and abilities the rational mind simply cannot comprehend, who bend spoons and spout fortunes and sideshow acts for skeptic skeletons and energy vampires awaiting a savior or a second coming. Well, I've been coming all over this motherfucker since purity failed to suck the magic out of my heart. And I say to you wayward wayseers, all you backyard soapbox speakers, you forward peace thinkers, we're gonna master the blast you ride out your sneakers I say you are she who sets us free and you are he who saves all humanity and we are the people old seers said will come to bring in the flower minded fields and blooming heart chakras dancing with the moon knowing full well we can never really touch her resting in the earth 
breathing in her bountiful bosom bliss, reshaping creation, imagination manifested fully, walking ancestral dynasties into the present, and there is no time like now. So undress your spirits, stroll naked down your city streets and small town courtyards, proclaiming, shouting with the voices of a thousand seraphim angels, I know the truth, wealth is not measured in belongings or bonds or gold. And I know the truth. You are infinitely larger than your bodies. Endless is your soul. And I know the truth. Power is laughing at those who seek to control. And I know the truth. You are not alone. You are so fucking not alone. And I know the truth. There's more going on than my eyes can see. And I know that truth. And it is set me free. I love you guys. Keep creating. Please welcome Shannon back to the stage. The exes that don't call me crazy are the ones that never did anything wrong. Meaning... The fire isn't lit without a spark. Meaning, if you don't lie to my face, I won't key your car, motherfucker. Shame has loudly followed me around like the sirens of a fire engine lost around the block. While your t-shirts don't burn without the lighter fluid. While you're the gaslighter, but I'm the one charged with arson? Mm. My last ex unironically called me a villain. Saying without words, the drier the kindling, the swifter the engulfment. Saying without words, I realized that being in love with someone didn't mean I needed to keep bleeding for them. The crazy comes in licks of flame, inferno roaring through my ears, bonfires mirrored in my pupils, heat pulsing outwards from my body until it burns those nearest to the white-hot rage, and I don't fear my crazy anymore. There are much more productive things to be insecure about than an ill-fitting name, like the way my voice cracks when I realize I'm being wronged, or how your sorry ass bagged me in the first place. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) The crazy, I think, is a symptom of a lifetime of reminders that I don't own my own body. I exist for the pleasure of others. It's my duty to be pleasant in the face of disrespect. Shoot. They tell me to ignore the gasoline in their own trunks, the book of matches in their own pockets. Believe me, the mentor of the arsonist will tell you that I'm the only one leaving ashes in their wake. But darling, you need to pull the pin to extinguish the flame. Keep it going for Skeleton Shannon. Y'all, this makes me so proud to be part of the poetry scene. Thank you all so very much. All right. By point two, that's why I say decimals matter. Pan Pantosia.
Give it up for all the competitors, all the judges, Black Rabbit Mead, Rita Whites. Hopefully we see you all Mondays. We have a nice costume cover poem night on Halloween. So if you don't have anything to do on Halloween, come through to Shims and let's do some more poetry. Thank you guys so much for being such a great crowd. Uh, Thank you, Black Rabbit Meads, for treating us so kindly. Listeners, thank you again so much for checking out this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks as well to the folks who came out in person to Black Rabbit Mead this week. It's been really fun doing these live events and always great to see some listeners there. So thank you for coming. Hope I will see you at the next one, which we are doing in November. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, spread the word. Let people know about the show. I really appreciate word of mouth. It makes all the difference for a project like this. So share those posts, send links to your friends, post things on social media. I don't know. Just help spread the word. It really does make a difference and is pretty essential for the show to continue to grow. This season of Renoites has been produced by myself and my co-producer, Lynn Lazaro. Again, if you have feedback or want to reach out, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com, or make sure you follow me on Instagram, at Renoites, also a very good way to get a hold of us. That's all we've got for you this week. The final episode of Renoites for this season will be out on Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 